Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Good evening, everybody. Um, you're listening to Chronically Chilled on 3CR. Uh, my name is Mario. Before I do anything, I just want to acknowledge that we're Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, whose land we broadcast from. Um, tonight, you'll be hearing from Dominic Golding. Dominic is the Ability Rights Coordinator at Rise Refugee and has recently released an advocacy report titled Ex-Detainees, Asylum Seekers and Refugees with Disabilities our needs and perceptions. So I caught up with Dominic just a few days ago, um, and he begins by telling us about RISE Refugee. Yeah, RISE Refugee is a drop-in centre based at the Ross House for refugees and asylum seekers. Uh, we've been running for about five years now. It is the only refugee support run and developed by refugees and asylum, asylum seekers. Um, so, can you talk a little bit about your role there and kind of the work that you do? Um, my role is, is developed over over my time being involved in at Christ. I started off as doing um, community placement services course, and then I moved to being doing the arts projects. So I've developed a number of arts projects with. Mm. Um, the members of RISE, and because of my, uh, I have two disabilities, mm-hmm. and I'm of a Vietnamese background, I have a good experience of the disability sector. And what has happened over that time is that a number of our, uh, our members have come forward requesting support around their disabilities. Mm-hmm. So I kind of naturally grew out of that. Yeah. Um, and so we've kind of developed a, a, a support program, uh, not in the sense of uh, like a, a case management work, but in the sense of trying to f- find linkages and services available for um, asylum seekers and refugees. But through that, what I encountered was that there's um, a lot of um, information that's not available unknown by both the disability sector and by the refugee sector. Mm-hmm. And I was kind of puzzled by that because I've, I've worked in the community sector for the last 17 years, mainly around refugees and, mm-hmm. and migrants. And I just thought, oh, that, that's just really interesting. So I, even though I've grown up in Australia, I have two disabilities, so I have a hearing impairment as well as mild cerebral palsy. Mm-hmm. So I, I kind of know... The, the sector quite well mm-hmm. but um, it, when a lot of the questions are asked is about where can I get support who can I talk to mm. what access do I have mm. and a lot of the time I, when I went out to look for certain services mainstream services to get 
accurate information about eligibility and um, accessibility was just amazingly um, difficult. Yeah, difficult. So you can go on all these different websites. Mm. A, they're all in English. That's the first barrier. Mm. And number two, to find the relevant information, you have to go through several different pages of the website mm. in order to find what you need. And it's like, well, I'm English speaker, literate, and if it's difficult for me, yeah. it must be quite um, difficult for recently arrived. Mm, absolutely. Um, we're going to get to the report that you wrote in just a sec. Um, but before that, I, I just wanted to ask, um, so I know Rise Refugee Centre's lived experience. Um, why do you think it's so important that lived experience is, is yeah, like at the centre of, of the organisation and also the work that you do? Um, we, the lived experience of um, our members is vital to how we deliver our services. Mm. And it's also vital to how our self-advocacy works mm. um, at large. So, because it's driven by, by our own lived experience, mm. the services are try to be as um, open and accessible as possible, mm. but also so that um, the, the members of the board are also of that background. Yeah. On that basis of support and getting the funding support, we rely mainly on donations from the refugee community. Yeah. But also we, we make a political stance that um, because of the government's role in perpetuating not only mental health issues but also disability issues mm. for our members who are in detention or just out of detention. Yeah. So we, we believe we should not take money from mm. the federal government. So we kind of take that stance when it comes to developing our support services and yeah. advocacy in, in, in that space. And, and I feel like that, that is, it's a big difference to, say, other organisations that are in the refugee sector who haven't kind of centred that lived experience as much and involve people who actually are asylum seekers and refugees. Would you agree with that? Uh, yes, I would agree with that. That's mainly because... Um, no fault of their own, but you're operating, those services operate within the mainstream mm. perimeter. So it, it basically is really about delivering uh, an, a, a service that generally comes from a universal equitable position. Mm. It's actually not a catering to what you would think would be the denominator group that you're servicing. Yeah. So we tend to take the opposite view, which is, I experienced a concern in the community and a barrier. I will, will develop a service to help directly support that. An example would be we, we have a, quite a few different services. So we have a library, mm -hmm. which is freely accessible, but it's, it's stocked by texts and books by people of colour. And But, we're, but mainly most of our work is advocacy and uh, and the other lot of our work is legal advocacy, so mm. case work around um, the tribunal. Yeah, okay. Mm. Um, so that brings me to the report that you wrote. Um, it's called Ex Detainees, Asylum Seekers and Refugees with Disabilities Our Needs and Perceptions of Disability. Um, so you've kind of already talked about why this is important. Can you talk us through the process of how this report came about? Yeah, this um, report, which. Um 
came about from my engagement with funding bodies. Mm. And the principal question that we, we got back from, feedback from those funding bodies was that um, where's the information, where's the data around refugees with disabilities? Mm. And we went, oh, okay. So we, we just having antidotal evidence mm. from our members was not enough. We needed to come up with a more concrete, conclusive yeah. um, basis of, of why a service is, is needed particularly for this cohort, mm. which is refugees and asylum seekers with disabilities. Um, so I was had the opportunity to do the Social Equity Institute um, Fellowship at Melbourne Uni. And that allowed me access to the resources and uh, two mentors from mm. the sector, mm. one in the disability sector and one in the um, refugee sector. Mm. And I... We started out with a literature review and then I incorporated um, what I call an um, unstructured, semi-structured interview process um, with our members mm. to kind of see whether how much of the information that's out there in relation to um, the experiences of our members. So try and match, match them together. So it's really aimed at um, refugee organisations, um, migrant resource centres, uh, health clinics and health services, and disability services. So they get an understanding of mm. if a, if, a, if, a, if a, any of their clients is of a refugee background and has a disability, yeah. they kind of have a, a bit of a base understanding of, of some of the complexities of, yeah. of, of coming to a country newly arrived and with a disability. Yeah. Um, when I was reading it, I was thinking this is really good for just mainstream community services, right? Um, because often they don't come in contact with people who are refugees and newly arrived. And I think you were talking before about funding bodies and funding bodies can sometimes be very siloed in kind yeah. of the way they fund. And then services also become really siloed. And I know that's something you wrote in your report. So can you talk to me a little bit um, about the silos and how actually that gets enacted when people try and access supports. So the, the, the silo approach has really come, what I believe, came out of the medical model. Mm. So um, disability was seen traditionally as, as from a, a defunction of one's body and and that's an impairment. It, so our way of looking at disability was, um, in a sense, developed on how to, how do you fix that? And um, so that's one silo. And there's a lot of literature, a lot of work around around how that is compared to the social model of uh, disability. Mm. And but the refugee um, end of it, it really comes out of uh, border crossing and the literature around legal status of being a refugee and what you need to prove to be a refugee, which is about persecution. Mm. And what was really interesting was that um, I found that none of the disability literature and the refugee sector literature actually communicated mm. 
both intersectionality-wise. Yeah. So there's very little information from the refugees about experiences of disability mm. and what that means, and I found that really strange because most, in generally, most refugees come from conflict zones. Yes. And what happens in conflict zones? People get shot at, they're bombs, they're mm. fleeing, fleeing burning villages mm. and towns and so forth. Generally, that creates disability. <laughs> yes. And but the disability sector really comes more out of a community activist stance from the 1960s and mm -hmm. 70s, but mainly from the 1970s, you know, domestic advocacy. So it's out of the institutions, mm -hmm. from the medical model, into the community. So the disability sector literature was really about uh, how do you get equality, how do you get um, fair treatment, and how do, you, how do you challenge the idea of the medical and moving it into the social model? Mm. Um, but what they don't talk about is um, minority groups. So even um, what we like to call people of colour or migrants, mm. most of the literature from the disability sector is um, Anglo-Saxon mainstream, yeah. um, which is where it comes from. So, mm -hmm. what was interesting about the disability was is that the only aspect of disability that looks as close to the refugee area was um, veterans, um, mm -hmm. war veterans, and the history of war veterans advocating for better support services for their disabilities. Mm. So, I kind of try to bridge those two together. Yeah, great. Um, so... Another barrier that, that, that you um, highlight in your, in your report is that refugees who arrive on humanitarian grounds and asylum seekers are granted different visas. Um, so the visas, depending on what visa you're on, is actually also dependent on what services you can access. Can you talk a bit about that? That's a, a very complex one because visas are purposely built to be complex. Mm, they are. <laughs> <laughs> so to unpack it as simply as I can, mm. if you're a refugee and you, should, you can come to, into Australia on a humanitarian entrance visa, you're automatically given perm permanent residency. Mm. This gives you access to all the mainstream services, yeah. disability services, plus Medicare. Or the bridging visas, TBV and CHEV visas only give you access to Medicare, and that's restricted on what kind of services there are. Mm. Medicare is not disability support services, and that's why I try to make clear in the report that um, it's those who are asylum seekers have an additional barrier, and w when they have a disability, there's more barriers Absolutely. to encounter. So if you have a hearing impairment and you're an asylum seeker, mm. you cannot always get... Um, hearing aids for mm. uh, from the mainstream hearing audiologists mm. in Australia, yeah. um, and so it's. But also, you're locked out of one principal defining act of a form that's currently happening, which is the NDIS, which is only available for those who are on her permanent residence. Yeah, okay. so that's where it gets a bit complicated. <laughs> to try to separate the visas as well as. Mm. The different 
classes yeah. and what you're eligible for. Yeah. Um, but the way you've explained it is there's a whole bunch of people that actually can't have access to any services or mm. any help in the community. Yeah. 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 So I know going back to the silos you were talking about before and how there's no communication between the different kind of, you know, sectors and things like that. Um, one of the things that you wrote about in your report, which I thought was really interesting, was that often services don't ask the question about disability and, you know, um, ask about whether people are needing support for that. So can you talk a bit about that and why you think that, you know, it's not being talked about when people are coming in contact with services, particularly settlement services? Well, that comes from a long, long, long history of, of uh, migration support and settlement in Australia. Mm. Migration support is really based on um, a certain narrow idea of like hierarchy of needs. Mm. So the refugee sector and settlement has focused on those sort of things. They have not con considered disability. That's kind of like later down the track mm. or if a family member has a disability, we'll deal with that later. So um, that's why settlement has not really dealt with disability well. Um, and also one of the main things is that um, because they don't ask about disability, mm -hmm. it's not addressed. Yeah. So if you've got a client that's coming in through the door for intake and you don't ask about disability, mm. they're not going to answer about disability yes that's right yeah and and this show this show we talk a lot about kind of invisible illness as well and invisible disabilities so it's even less likely that people are get services are going to pick up on that right unless they ask the question what is really interesting though is that when uh, uh, um, from feedback from ride members is that um, if you present to the ref refugee support or settlement service clearly with a, a visible physical mm. disability or intellectual disability, they're, they're more um, on top of things when it comes to getting that support services available for yeah. you in the community. Yeah. But if you present with, which a lot of refugees have, which is um, invisible disabilities, mm. then you're less likely to get the support you need. Yeah. Now this can come, this has been example like shrapnel injury, mm. um, torture injury, bad back injury, um, acquired brain injury because of torture and trauma or yeah. bombs going off yeah. and because you've been shot at. Yeah. Um, not every bullet, you know, causes it at a clearly a deformed impairment or mm. disability, but it, it's a disability that affects you 24-7. Yeah. So it might decrease your limits, your limitations to be able to do things. Mm. Um, so getting those support and justifying it is a lot harder. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so you in the, um, in the report, there was also kind of some quotes from people who you had interviewed um, just around their perceptions of disability and what that actually means for them mm. and for their communities. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, that um, came about with my investigation into the literature of both refugees and disability mm. sector. And I thought, well, hang on, we've got to rewind a little bit. Have we actually asked 
newly arrived refugee and asylum seekers what the term disability means for them? Yes. Mainly because the mainstream disability services in Australia present disability to the public. Mm. So um, if you want to get support, you must get your disability addressed by this organisation and so forth. Um, And that's quite confronting for uh, newly arrived people. So it's like, whoa, um, what does this mean? Because I use English as a a second or third or even a fourth language. And also, um, well... Back in my language my, or country of origin, that does not make sense. Mm. For many people, they come from countries where disabilities and having a disabilities is still looked down upon. Mm. So, or the porch required to address that disability is not going to come from government, it's going to come from the community. Mm. For example, in, in one language, um, there is no word for disability, yeah. but it's a specific different types of impairments. Mm. And another, in another language, um, disability, the way we describe disability, when it's translated, is a negative. Yeah. So the negative is reinforced when they come to Australia and they see the services that are available for them. Um, so so uh, we've talked a lot about all the gaps that there is. Um, Dominic, what do we do about it? <laughs> um, it this report kind of, uh, on what I came out with, is kind of, kind of an overall analysis mm. of how systems are working. Yeah. And I put in a, one need to work within those systems. Mm. So we've got the structures available, but we need to be more proactive mm. as mainstream service providers to do the right thing as you would an Australian citizen. Yeah. Just because you're newly arrived or not, don't speak English or may not know uh, a full translated document from the services, you need to actually take the initiative and be active about how they get the support yeah. that they need. Yeah. If, if you go to the GP, you get your initial health ass- assessment one should need, the doctor should ask about disability yeah. there in order to get the referral required. Mm. So that's kind of what I'm, I'm kind of getting at. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I, I, don't, I feel like mainstream services saying, I don't know, is just not good enough. And I think it's up to mainstream services to, to reform, to change their approach and not rely on organisations like yours to kind of fill mm. that gap for them. You know? Yeah. Um, in some ways, this report was uh, we're kind of like throwing out a bit of bait <laughs> to them. So, and also, well, kind of encourage the organisation to do their homework after reading it. So yes. It, it wasn't meant to be a, a comprehensive thesis no. on refugees with disabilities. Yeah. It's more to, more to encourage um, internal reform in the process of how you get... Give the support to your mm. clients. Yeah, an invitation to be better. Um, also, just finally, really briefly, um, can you talk a little bit about the the work Rise Refugees doing to shut Manus and Nauru down? 
um, and kind of I know you've taken a different approach where the focus has been so much on getting children out of detention and I know f- from your organization it's let's get everybody out of Nauru and Manus. Can you talk to me a little bit about the work that you're doing there? Yeah, I can really talk from a basis of where I'm coming from, which is disability and and, mm. and to a degree mental health. Large refugees believe that all people in detention need to come to Australia and get processed. Um, now, the refugee advocates, rightly or wrongly, have taken the band-aid approach, which is to, to appeal to um, empathy and sympathy, mm-hmm. which is get the children out first and then the rest will come later. Mm-hmm. But there is no rest will come later because the government is still persistent on offshore detention and they're still insisting that the men, mainly men on Manus, will stay there mm-hmm. indefinitely. Mm-hmm. So, but on that notion, what the refugee advocates have done has skewered the debate around uh, children and mental health. Now, what they've, they've focused too heavily on mental health. Mm. Mental health is also disabling, which is what I try to point out in the report. Mm. But also the fact that the conditions that both adults and children are experiencing causes disability. Therefore, they should all need to come to Australia and get the relevant support and treatment that we, we can give. We all heard this before, I know, but the majority of people in those offshore centres have been assessed by the UNHCR as being refugees. Yes. So they're, they're, they're no, there's no threat to Australian in that no, sense. of course. Yeah. Um, and just very finally, how can, how can people support RISE and, and find, find um, you? Supporting RISE comes on two fronts. Mm. One, you can support our sovereignty campaign, which is um, uh, connecting both Indigenous rights and sovereignty rights with um, refugee rights. So you can get in touch with um, RISE to be involved in that. That's mainly um, campaigning and public, public protest. The other um, aspect is that you can actually donate to write by going to their website um, or dropping in food because a lot of our, um, because of the current situation that um, the funding cuts that has occurred under the federal government to um, asylum seekers uh, is that they're even more dependent on the need for basic necessities like mm-hmm. food and, and mm-hmm. um, tampons and um, clothing and so forth. So that's another way you can can donate and support RISE. That was Dominic Golding from RISE Refugee discussing the report Ex-Detainees, Asylum Seekers and Refugees with Disabilities, Our Needs and Perceptions of Disability. Um, You can find the report and also support the great work that RISE do by going to their website, which is riserefugee.org. Um, that's all we've got time for tonight. Thank you so much to Dominic for joining the show um, and also thank you for listening.